Dotnet Rocks episode 701 with guest Jeremiah Peshka. Recorded live Friday, September 2nd, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Wow, is your head spinning or what? Richard isn't here for the intro. He'll be here for the show. He's in Germany right now. Um, 700 was an interesting show because we learned what people were thinking and we got to know how in the dark everybody actually was about what was going to be announced at Build. Now we're in a post-Build world and what does it mean? Well, let me summarize what's going on for you as a .NET developer. So they obviously showed off Windows 8 on a tablet. They gave everybody a tablet to play with. Those tablets, those Samsung tablets, are going to be available for sale, I think, after October 1st uh, for about 1200 bucks online. And they'll come with Windows 7, which you can upgrade yourself to the Windows 8 preview, developer preview. So here's what we know. And you know what? Let's just go ahead and make this a better know framework. Okay. So Windows 8 has two modes that it runs in. Metro mode. Where, which has all these great new tiles and all this cool, slick Windows 8 stuff that you've seen. And that's where all apps are launched from. And then desktop mode, which runs all Windows 7 compatible software. It's just like Windows, desktop mode. So there's a new version of IE. And the Metro version of it does not support plugins. So there's no Flash, no Silverlight on the Metro side. But on the desktop... It works exactly like you'd expect with full support for Flash, Silverlight, and everything else. So here's the deal. Strategically, Microsoft is trying to solve the problem of Windows applications ruining your system. And uh, there's been a big mistrust of Windows applications uh, from the users of Windows for years. Uh, I was just sitting here in the studio before I recorded this. My stepdaughter thing pops up and says she's got all sorts of uh, problems and viruses with her registry needs to be cleaned up. It's an old story, all right? So they're trying to instill some consumer confidence again in Windows. This Metro mode is a silo. When you, you can only install applications for Metro from an app store where the applications are vetted. And by doing that vetting, which Apple obviously does very well, they're able to control what goes on your computer. So if you're just using Metro mode, great. However, there are limitations. So let me explain things. Uh, the start menu in the desktop mode is gone. That brings you to the Metro start page. And at this point in time, if you want to launch an app from desktop mode, you can either search for it in Metro mode with a little search screen, or you can create a shortcut on your desktop, create folders of shortcuts, whatever. But there is no start menu in desktop mode. Windows 8 runs in about two-thirds of the RAM that Windows 7 runs in today, so that's good. Obviously, they're uh, doing a lot of work to make the default profile of Windows leaner and meaner. That's good. Metro apps, which again, are only these things that run in Metro mode in that silo through the App Store. These can be written in JavaScript and HTML5, C++, C Sharp or VBNet, and they only run on Windows 8. Metro apps can only run one instance at a time. You can't shut them down. When memory pressure gets too high, apps that have not been in use recently are shut down by the system, but they get five seconds with which to save their state information. So there's an eventing system for that, and there's also another event that happens when they, you come back to life. So you can effectively save your state. The Windows Runtime, or WinRT, is a new native framework. It's essentially calm under the hood, but with differences. There's reference counting, not garbage collection. Of course, calm has always been reference counted. But you have exceptions and not H results. And there's a very thin interface that is reflected up uh, to the developer to be able to use that, um, that runtime. So 
The runtime is available from all languages. If you're using VBNet or C Sharp, however, you'll use a CLR. So let me explain. There's a new version of .NET, .NET 4.5, which runs in desktop mode. And there's a smaller profile version of .NET 4.5 that runs in Metro mode. So when you're using C Sharp or VBNet for Metro apps, this light CLR is used to access the Windows runtime from C Sharp and VBNet. But you do not, do not use this CLR when you're developing with JavaScript C++. You use the Windows runtime directly. But one much but much of what is in the .NET framework has been pushed into this native runtime. So the more languagey things like generics, link, and that kind of goo is implemented in the .NET 4.5 Metro profile in this CLR, but it's not in the runtime. But lots of stuff got pushed down into that runtime. So the big question is, how hard is it to migrate existing XAML apps, for lack of a better word, to Metro? Well, the jumping-off point is Silverlight. So Microsoft made it look easy in the keynote to load up a Silverlight app as a Metro app and make a few tweaks and then run it as a Metro app. Apart from the obvious things like third-party tools or Microsoft tools like Pivot, you'll have the most trouble with things like File.io. System.io has changed, so there is no file.exists, things like that, loading files up. There's a whole streaming thing. But a lot of stuff where you could just snoop around for files, open them and close them has changed. You really only have access to your documents, your pictures, your videos, and your music. The network stack has changed. So if you're doing any network calls, that's going to have to be rewritten a bit. Um, and there's, I know I'm glossing over these things. There's no background worker object. Uh, Rocky Laka figured that out when he was trying to port CSLA.net. Had to rewrite his own. Reflection has changed. Uh, get type info. There's, is an extension method on type in system.reflection, which you now have to use instead of using get properties, get methods directly on the type object. Uh, there's no workflow, no system speech. So a lot of that stuff, you know, those extra things aren't in there. Of course, WCF is there and, uh, most of it's there. So, so what do you take from this? I see this as a point in time, a window of opportunity to take everything we've written in the last three or four years and sell it all over again. So I think this is good news for developers. And guess what? Windows isn't changing. I mean, yes, there's new things being added to it, but Silverlight clearly is not dead. There's This desktop mode is obviously what's going to be used in business and your business software customers are going to run your Silverlight apps just like they always have. Um, you know, how much Metro gets in the way of that, I don't know. Don't know what they're going to do about that, but we'll see. Uh, I think it's good news. Nothing is dead. We're only adding new cool things. And quite frankly, they're trying to compete with uh, Apple on the iPad for tablets. And as far as I'm concerned, they're they're nailing it. I've been playing with my tablet for a long time, uh, ever since I got it. In fact, when I brought it home to the hotel room that night, I said to my wife, I'm going to be gone for a couple hours. <laughs> I really, really, really love it, and I think they did a great job. So hats off to Microsoft for me. Anyway, that's my opinion. Uh, since Richard isn't here, I will read the email, which is actually a comment from Show 700 by Tim Houlihan. And he says, great show and congrats on 700. There's only one thing I would have changed. Turn the mics on yourselves for that kind of show. Which is kind of ironic because I just read a big diatribe. Uh, you have both worked in the Microsoft space for so long and have great insight to the company and community. It would have been interesting to hear what you both thought was coming. And then he goes on to say, so what do the build announcements mean for .NET Rocks? I don't mean to imply .NET is going away, not anytime soon, but the Windows application developer community just got a lot bigger. And arguably, .NET isn't the cutting-edge way of developing Windows apps anymore, particularly once we are closer to launch. Do you still see the show focusing on .NET or including C++, XAML, and HTML5 JavaScript developers? If the latter, do you see yourselves rebranding the show? Thanks, Tim. And uh, in lieu of all of that information, I think you guys can see what we're doing. We're, we're still calling our show .NET Rocks. We may spin off another show on Metro WinRT. Hmm? I think we're 
seriously talking about doing that, and that would mean a third weekly show from yours truly and Richard Campbell, the man who knows everything. So do you think this is a good idea? Send us your comments, your threats, your kudos. Uh, leave a comment on the website or just send us an email, .netrocks at franklins.net. Well, Richard, uh, this is going to be a great show because Jeremiah Peshka is here. He's one of the contributors to Corrugated Iron, which is a, a, a .NET client for React. Mm-hmm. Jeremiah helps developers, DBAs, and engineers build faster, robust, and scalable solutions. Microsoft SQL Server is frequently part of that solution, but not always. He has worked as a database and emerging technology expert at Quest Software, researching new trends and technologies around data storage. Before that, Jeremiah worked across many industries as a system admin, a developer, and DBA, and has been involved in all aspects of app development and deployment. Welcome, Jeremiah. Welcome. Good to be here. And a fellow line crosser. You could ha- live in the ops and live in the dev. Yeah, yeah. They're they're both really, really interesting worlds. Um, it's a weird a weird place to be sometimes, but it's been really fun. Yeah, I, I found it pays well if you can actually speak both languages. <laughs> yes, it does. When you can talk to a developer, a SAN admin, and a network guy, people want to keep you around for a while. Yeah, you're useful. Yeah. Even better if you can play guitar. Hey, um, <laughs> and drink scotch, just saying. But um, <laughs> let's talk first about React, because this, this okay. is new to me. I, under, I didn't know anything about React until, uh, until I read your bio. And ta- uh, before we can talk about uh, corrugated iron, we need to talk about React. So what is it? So React is a distributed key value store that's written in Erlang. Um, it's based off of the... Amazon Dynamo white paper, which is sort of put out by the engineers at Amazon a few years back about how they built this fault-tolerant key-value store to store shopping carts. Hmm. And so the idea is that your data store is replicated all over the place, uh, geographically as well as electronically, and and uh, and then there's some crazy protocol that um, that this thing uses to to keep things in sync, right? Absolutely. That's that's probably the best short summation I've ever heard of it. Um, nice. Yeah, it, well, it does a lot of yeah, it does a lot of work in the back end to keep things synced up. It's you know the there's a joke that it's um it's a bunch of Akamai engineers' idea of a fault tolerant database <laughs> where fault tolerance includes nuclear attack. Yeah. <laughs> nice. You know, yeah, right out of the box, it's going to copy your data to three places. Um, All right. And it's it seems like a no brainer, I mean, in this distributed world on the web that we shouldn't be relying on one box to serve you know, or one box in one location with one power circuit to serve uh the world. Absolutely, yeah. And we are talking about dropping down to a key value store. What does that really mean? What does it look like? So it's it's pretty simple actually. It's it's quite literally just a, a key. That is a effectively a byte array, though you know, depending on your language, it's going to be a string, and then a value that's just a, another opaque byte array. The database itself, React itself, doesn't care what's in that value. So it's very simplest. You're just saying, you know, give me dot that rocks podcast seven hundred one, and it just returns whatever is in there. Right. Mm-hmm. But then one of the really cool things that the people who develop React added on to it is you can start attaching metadata just like you would with HTTP headers so you can start adding descriptive data with the key. And that becomes a little bit trickier to query because by default, a key value database is just give me a key and I'll give you back a, you know, a value. Mm-hmm. So it also has some MapReduce functionality built in so you can do some ad hoc querying on top of the data, but you have to write it all yourself. So does that mean you have multiple relations to a given key? Um, so a key would still just have a single value. There's no right. real way to do relationships like you would in a you know typical relational database. You don't have foreign keys giving you any kind of integrity. But you were talking about attributes of a given value or tagging of a different value. Isn't that making another relationship to that key? Well, it's it's all stored as like metadata, like HTTP headers. So it's oh, okay. just sort of on that on that object and stored with it. So as you go through the database, if you want to say look through 
a bucket because all the keys and values are organized by a bucket. And so you say, I want to look through the bucket of podcasts and I want to find everyone that has, say, database as a, as a sort of a tag. That's one way you could do it where you could loop through that entire bucket and look at some kind of tagging that you put on there in. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So are these, are these attached, this metadata stored as part of the value? So it's sort of a structure to value? Um, it's stored, I think it's actually stored as part of the key. So as you query, you can actually inter- interrogate the key data as well as interrogate the value. So as you're querying, wow. you know, when you just pull back a key value, it sends you back all this header information with the value. Or when you're writing your MapReduce functionality, you can actually interrogate the key, that, that data that's stored with the key instead of having to parse maybe that entire value. So it's a separate value that's specific to the database that's stored with the key along with your value, essentially. Yes. All right. And you said MapReduce a couple of times. Maybe we need to define that for folks. Yeah. <laughs> so MapReduce is basically, if you're familiar with select and group by, that's effectively a MapReduce. You know, right. selecting something is you know, just getting it. So I want this portion of information, and I want you to, to shrink that down in some way. So MapReduce, in, in the terms of REAC, is you're effectively saying, I only want to pull back certain pieces of data. And then you have to write a miniature program to tell it which pieces of data get pulled out by that phase. And then if you need to do math on it, you're doing an aggregation, you add an extra reduce phase to take whatever you filtered down and then reduce it further. So you, you know, get aggregations, you do whatever you need to do to your numbers and your data to get it out to the end users in a the format they want. So I guess you could throw the where clause in there too. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And there's you know, a lot of different ways you can do that. Um, one of the really cool things with React is that by default, they wrote, they wrote their own storage backend for it because there are certain techniques that they weren't finding with other storage backends. So it has a specific storage backend called uh, BitCask, and that keeps all of the keys in memory. So you can actually do key filtering, which will just do in-memory scans of all of your keys. Hmm. So you can start start using intelligent key names. You know, DBAs are always like, no, no, you should use an identity column. It's just an integer that always increases. Right. Maybe you use a GUID. You know, neither one of those have meaning. Right. Yeah. And so instead, you can do intelligent key names and actually say you're you know, recording stock symbols. You can actually just record the, say, by the, the trading, wherever the trade took place, the stock ticker symbol, and then a timestamp. So that way you could actually very quickly find you know, all trades for Apple or all trades that happened in the last three hours. It reminds me of the way .NET assemblies uh, have namespaces in the, the classes in the .NET framework. I mean, a namespace kind of system with a hierarchy of dots seems like it could be very useful in this case. Absolutely, yeah. You can you know structure with a, a bucket, it's basically just a logical namespace, and even within the key, just like yeah, namespace system. It's just a hierarchy. Yeah, absolutely. Pretty cool. So, where do I get React? If I obviously I need that if I want to use corrugated iron. So you would go to um, the software company that makes its website. They're called Basho, mm-hmm. and you go wiki.basho.com, and they've got a place where you can download it. Um, if you're using Linux, it's actually available through a lot of uh, different distribution source repositories. Mm-hmm. You just, you know, apt get install React and it'll be there for you. Sure. And uh, is will it run on a Windows server? That's a good question. I think it depends on the version of Erlang you have. I haven't actually tried to get it running on Windows server because I use a Mac for most mm-hmm. things. And then I use Windows 7 and Visual Studio 2010 and a VM to do all my development. Right. So, I mean, this is the challenge here is you're actually going to download the source and you need to build up a compilable environment to make it work. Um, unfortunately, that is, I believe, the Windows route right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's not like Erlang doesn't exist for Windows either. I also see there's PHP versions of it as, as well. So there's a, yeah, there's a number of different drivers for it. That way, you know, you can talk to it with PHP, with Java. Uh, there's a very full-featured Ruby client. Mm-hmm. Um, and now our, our .NET client, which we're trying to develop pretty aggressively. And our gold standard is getting up to the level of features that the Ruby client has. I get it. And okay. uh, apparently Mozilla and Comcast are both using this. Yes, they are. And uh, HP just posted a couple of jobs as well. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there are other kinds of key value stores 
like this. I mean, it, React to me doesn't seem particularly extraordinary in that respect. It, you know, have you looked at other products along those lines? I'm thinking of something like Hadoop. I have looked at you know a bunch of other products along those lines, and um, one of the easy the thing I found about React is that it's really easy to use. You just you know, mm-hmm. there's no master node like Hadoop has task tracker nodes and job trackers, and there's, there are a lot of special single purpose nodes you have to stand up. You can do it all on one server. You can have it sort of running in a development mode. But it's still a lot of stuff you have to make sure is configured correctly and all the pieces, parts have to talk to each other. I see. Um, and they, you know, they, they work well. Hadoop definitely fills a specific niche. It does such a fantastic job with huge batch processing across hundreds of commodity computers. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, where, where we've used it is we've got hundreds of millions of data points we've collected and we're trying to do complex aggregates and even SQL Server just goes, you, you have to spend tens of thousands of dollars on gear for it. Yeah. And meantime, we have all these low-end machines and throw Hadoop clients on them all and all of a sudden it, it splits the workload across them for you and you get a, a quick render back. Yep. Yeah, yeah, you commodity supercomputer effectively. Yeah. And, and plus, you, you don't need to know a lot to pull that off. Like, it, it's not incredibly difficult to do. Right. So, right. I, and I mean, that's what fascinates me about Hadoop. I'm still trying to figure out how React fits into that picture. What is it? What is its strength? So, and by the way, I just read in the fact that React is not supported for Windows. Oh, I'd hoped it would be by now. I know I've seen people on the list talking about it. Um, maybe yep. they've figured it out themselves. Mac OS X in all flavors of Linux. There you go. The you know the nice thing is um, it's pretty easy to get it up and running on EC2, and it can still run on a, a micro instance. So mm-hmm. it won't have a lot of RAM, but it could be free. But it, I think you're, you bring up an interesting point, which is probably the best way to deploy this is to stand up virtual machines in the cloud for mm-hmm. it. Absolutely, yeah. I've been I've recently really fallen in love with using cloud computing. And then I think with the, with the distributed nature of something like you know Amazon's cloud or any other major cloud is that it's really cheap to just stand something up when you need to perform the work and then turn it back mm-hmm. off again. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so yeah, where where React fits in though, back to your uh, original question, is mm-hmm. Hadoop works really well as a batch processing system. You know, H HBase sits on top of it and is sort of a column store much like you know Google wrote about in their big table white paper but it's still you know it's a lot of a lot of java programming to make that work um, and sometimes if you want to extend it you know you've got to do some additional work there or if it doesn't specifically fit in well with your environment it's kind of tricky i know that configuring java can also be very painful if you have a lot of io you can see garbage collection storms sure so yeah, that's that's one of the problems. Cassandra, likewise, um, I've talked to a few people who've worked with it. They've had some difficulty getting it set up. Uh, I'm not sure what their knowledge level with Java was, what that whole ecosystem is. Um, but you know, React for me, I really liked working with it when I first found it because so I, I start one node and then I start a second one. How do I get them to join? They just say, oh well, you know, node two, talk to node one, and they exchange information and they're they're good to go, and you have a two node cluster. Huh. Then you add a wow. third node and you say, hey, node three, talk to node one. And they talk and all of a sudden node three becomes aware of nodes one and two. So it's all of a sudden mm-hmm. aware of everybody in the cluster. Simple. And it gets really easy. Yeah, it's really simple to work with. If you need to add another node, you stand up another node, tell it to join the cluster, and they'll start shuffling data around so that data is evenly distributed between all of the servers. And so that provides query performance because multiple nodes will work on a given query as well as redundancy? Yep, exactly. Okay. So the, the nice thing is, you know, you, you get your redundancy is when you when you query React, there there's this little logo for it that's a bunch of you know little dots, and there's three lines pointing out from one dot to you know three other nodes. So when you query any given node, you say, hey, what's what's where's this key? Give me some data for this key. And if that node doesn't have it, it knows who has the data, so it asks those other servers for data. And as soon as a quorum of servers respond back. So if you, you know, say the data should be on three machines for redundancy, as soon as two servers respond back with the same information, it sends that data back to you. So you don't just make sure you get data, but you get the right data. Nice. Yeah. 
This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik Just Decompile. Recent developments in the .NET world have opened up a niche for a free .NET decompiling tool. If you, like so many other developers, have been looking for an alternative .NET decompiler, you'll most certainly welcome the launch of Just Decompile, a powerful tool which promises to stay free forever. Currently in beta, Just Decompile offers effortless .NET decompiling and assembly browsing, innovative code analysis and navigation, side-by-side assembly loading, auto-updating, and better decompiling accuracy. A product by leading .NET vendor Telerik, Just Decompile has an aggressive release schedule and a roadmap based on community feedback. You can visit the Just Decompile feature suggestion forum to let Telerik know what features you'd like to see added to Just Decompile or vote for one suggested by your peers. The official version launch is expected this summer, 2011. Go to Telerik.com slash .NET decompiling. And remember to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Going back to our description of how to set this thing up, you're either standing up separate servers yourself, perhaps in separate locations to connect them together, or you're standing up different virtual machine instances in clouds to do it as well. Yep. So what's the communication path like between these different machines? How is it secure? Um, you would really, if you wanted to be secure, you'd want them to be on a, uh, either a, like a virtual private network in a virtualized private cloud, or you'd want it to be on your local network. It's still going to be pretty chatty. It's going to use a gossip protocol between them. Yeah, I was I was looking at that gossip protocol. Um, there's something in the fact there. It's kind of interesting, but it's pretty simple. Yeah, it's it's very simple. Uh, you know, just they they gossip the ring state around. They say, hey, these nodes are here. Do you, can you see these guys? And they sort of you know let each other know that servers are up and running or they aren't up and running. Hmm. But yeah, I'm just thinking about security of the data. That's always what we're jumpy about, right? Yes, that's that people are always very, very jumpy about data security. Um, you know, so you can do can, your own encryption, of course. You can, yeah, you can roll your own encryption between the you know, two endpoints. Um, you can put it in some kind of virtual private network, um, virtual cloud network. Yeah, you can encrypt the data going in and coming out, so the the keys stay in the same place. Exactly. On, you know, whatever's serving up the data. Yep. Yeah, a, a lot of it is left up to people implementing at what level of security they want to see. Right. Uh, makes sense. And since it's just a byte array, you can have binary data. You yep. Know. Is there any limitation on the size of a, key, of a value? Um, there's no theoretical limitation on it. The practical size, uh, from what I've heard, is about 64 megs. It's about the biggest you want to be transmitting around. Yeah. And in your library, in your corrugated iron library, when you're pulling down a very large blob like that, do you have sort of um, piece at a time access, or do you say, go get this and then sit and wait for the whole thing? Initially, we did have piece at a time library, you know, code written in there, and, and we started talking about it. And, um, OJ, OJ, actually, the guy, other guy who works on it with me lives in Australia, so there's a huge time disconnect sometimes. Um, but we started talking about this and said, well, people could start storing large images in there, um, so we better make sure it streams data back. And we tried to use as much communication as possible and make as much of our communication streaming as possible so that way it doesn't block on the client end. Right. So is it still there? Do you still have that sort of piece-by-piece uh, piece functionality? Um, what we ended up doing is we ended up implementing it two separate paths. There's one path that, that you know the developer has to, has to consciously choose, either do I want a streaming path or do I want to block and wait for all of my results to come back. Right. So we kind of left that up to the people using it. It's uh, tried to provide well, a, some flexibility. Yeah, that's good, I think. Because, you know, for smaller values, you just want to go get them. Yeah. But for if you're storing a file, you know, you want to have some progress and the ability to resume and all of that stuff. Yep. You want you want that number to change three minutes, 15 minutes, 30 seconds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just don't let it go up. It has to go down. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I've always found if you put the slider bar to 99% and then roll it back to 50%, people get really angry. <laughs> yes, they it's do. It's not good. We didn't know how big your file was. That's right. <laughs> We're just guessing. <laughs> Making it up here. 
<laughs> so, you know, we talked about spinning up different nodes and how the data would automatically aggregate across them. I could also start shutting nodes down. Yeah, you and can, it's uh, not going to lose you, anything. You'll so when you shut a node down, if you if you're going to tell it to leave the cluster, right? What will happen? Is, so if you actively say, "Okay, I don't need 17 servers anymore. I really need to get down to five. You'll take one node down, and it will shuffle that data around and make sure it's in the appropriate number of places. So if you know right. you want to turn turn servers off, you want to turn them off one at a time. It'll move data around, um, and as you know, it'll tell you when that when that ring state has reached a ready state and data isn't moving around anymore and you can slowly turn servers off one at a time see yeah i'm just thinking about this is now a storage system that really works with that sort of cloud scaling ability that i can light up instances and shut down instances based on performance demands yep pretty much yes you know as, as you see a lot of random reads and writes you know with a traditional database all you do is sort of if you have a lot of random read and write you either buy solid state drives or you throw more drives at your data. Mm, and in yep. this case, you can you, know, you don't have to add more drives into your SAN and convince your SAN admin that this is a really good idea and please, please, can I have more money? Yeah. You can just turn on some more instances in EC2 and be good to go. Now, a couple of things. You, the uh, React uh, um, wiki says there's no master node. Now, does that mean you can send any command to any node? Or do you typically send the command to the node that needs to do something? You would uh, typically just send it to any node. Really? So you could send a kind of a command to node one that says node three talk to node four. You would basically send a command and say, "I want this data," or "I want you to perform this map reduce," and then it's going to go out and either get you the data from wherever in the the cluster it is, or it's just going to send out map reduce instructions and say, "Okay, so here's the data we need. Bring it back." But you would do that to the thing that you to the node that you wanted to get it on. What I'm saying is, you don't talk to one any node through any node. You, if you want to spin down node four, you talk to node four and say spin down. You don't talk to node one and say, hey, spin down node four. No, if yeah, if you're spinning down a node, you would just talk to that specific node. But if you're, you know, if you yeah. need data, it's truly masterless. There's no, there's no single right. point of failure. So also, uh, this uh, overview says that as you add nodes, uh, the speed goes up. Yes. So how how does that work? If every if they're all copied in every place, there they, yeah. By default, there's gonna be three copies of the data. So ideally, you know, as you as you're hitting that any node in the cluster, theoretically. You know, you're just getting data from anywhere in that cluster. It's going to be in three locations. Um, mm -hmm. You can configure it to go to more places, but you then have more machines that are able to service requests. There's a finite number of sockets you can have open. You can only send yeah. so much data back over a, over a network connection. So you just you know spread that out across cheap machines as opposed to buying you know 10 gigabit Ethernet and dedicated hardware to, to cover that. Oh, I, I guess what I'm saying is that um, it does it gets faster just because there's more places for you to query. Not that there's any kind of smarts in there that says, "Oh, node two is actually busier than node three, so node three will service this request." There's no kind of uh, right, um, yeah, load balancing on load balancing. Yeah, yeah. If you wanted a load balancer, you'd want to use some kind of load balancer, reverse proxy kind of thing in front of it to make sure that everything is going where it needs to go, but otherwise, it's not that clever. All right. It's but not I, that clever. But I guess what I'm saying is, so then, just to be clear, the speed comes from the fact that there are more places to pull it from, but you have to determine where the fastest place to pull it from is. Right. And yeah. for, for reading any single key, you can't really determine that, because what they do, what it does internally is, so when you go and you write something, and you write a key into a bucket, it takes a hash mm -hmm. of that key that bucket and key combination, and then uses that to randomly put it on a specific node in the cluster. Okay. So not every, each node doesn't have all the data store. It has pieces of it. Well, it does. I'm it, asking Jeremiah. <laughs> um, so each node has... So by default, each there will be three copies of your data. Okay. And so if you only have a three-node cluster, each node has a copy of all the data. And then if you have a right. five-node cluster... if you've cluster, got a 17-node cluster... Yep. There are still 14 machines that may not have your data. Okay. Now, now, 
Okay, from what I read, and this is why I said that, from what I read, it says that all of the nodes have a copy of everything eventually because they will eventually all be in sync. That's not true? So you'll eventually get your, your you know, the, all nodes know where all data is okay. at any given time. So they're all, they're all aware of it. And then all the nodes that should have data will get it. So you get that eventual consistency. So if you write a, a one of the really interesting things that you get the ability to do as well is tell React how many copies of the data do you need to confirm have been written before you return with a successful acknowledgement. So you can, if you want to be really quick, you can say only write to one server and then tell me you're done. So it'll just send the message. It'll wait for that confirmation and it'll come back and say, okay, you got your one right, that's done. And the two other nodes may not have responded yet. But eventually they'll get that data written to them. And and the balancing act here is size, you know, sort of size efficiency over read efficiency. It's the difference between RAID one and RAID five. Right. Right. If we keep a copy of everything on every machine, then we need equally large machines to cover everything. Right. Whereas if we could actually start to share this out a little more, we can save some space and still have redundancy and reliability. Exactly. Okay. One one thing that I'm still not very clear on is when you're querying your React store, whatever that is, do you have to talk to a particular node or is there just, it says there's no master node. So what are you actually talking to? You, you would just query any node in the cluster for any piece of data and it will right. either serve you the data if it has it itself or it will, you know, say, okay, well, I know you need this key. I know this key is on these three nodes. I'll ask these three nodes for the data, and then it'll return it back. So do you find that developers actually try to keep track of which nodes have which data to get the fastest return, or do, do, does it not really matter? It doesn't really matter. You, you, yeah. you basically have to re-implement the hashing function to figure out which node had which data. So the, the benefit isn't that great. Yeah, the benefit is, I mean, you're taking, uh, at the most, one extra network hop. Yeah. So it's it's okay. pretty quick. Depending on how distributed your database is, because yeah. this, this could be very distributed. I, I keep thinking of having one of my stores in-house and one of them out in the cloud and mm. maybe one of them on a different cloud server. That's very distributed, but nicely redundant. And, you know, chances of all three of them going down are pretty darn low. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, in terms of queryability, uh, the corrugated iron product that you have, do you pull data into Link uh, so that we can use nice lambdas and queries and things like that? How does that work? So we don't have Link support yet. We it's on our it's on our roadmap. It's a longer term thing. Um, there's some of the features we just we're in the process of re- doing code review on before we push them out. Mm-hmm that get us incrementally closer to Link. It seems like that would be a challenge, seeing as how there isn't any real relational anything. Yeah, there's there's no schema. So it's it really difficult to actually write anything um, against the regular React key value store. Um, right. We did implement so we, some of our MapReduce functionality. You can build MapReduce jobs using Lambdas. Um, we've tried to make that you know as, as functional and as nice as possible for .NET developers to actually write their ad hoc queries in a way that at least is fairly .NET 4-ish. Hmm. Um, and we're, you know, adding some additional functionality. We, I just finished up a big revamp of the key filtering. The original way I wrote it wasn't very .NET-ish. It was, it was very <laughs> kludgy. It just sort of, I hacked it together, I got it working, and I was like, I need to fix this now. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you think that that's... Um... Even worth doing? I mean, if you're using a key value store as a relational database, isn't there something wrong there? <laughs> there's, there's something a little off, definitely, if you're, if you're expecting to get similar performance out of a key value database yeah. that you would see with ad hoc queries. Right. But at the same time, a key value store decomposes objects very nicely into the store, too. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, in some ways, I think it's it's a nicer way to store an object than decomposing it into a relational database, matching data types and all that other crap. You know, if you don't need to do ad hoc reporting, or if you can, say, break your ad hoc, you know, you're reporting down to, oh, I only have these five or six different ways I can query my data. 
key value, you know, a key value store is great because you can just write your data in the ways you need to read it back out again, and and you're done. It's really easy to do. Right. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only $6.95. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of Happy.net Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. You know, the other thing, we've talked about this before when we've done NoSQL topics as well, is as soon as you scale up a relational database, an OLTP database at any level, you end up setting up another database for reporting anyway. Yes. So why not have the NoSQL store be the application basically work from, and you're synchronizing that to a, a reporting relational database over time? I, you it's know, good, I absolutely, I love that approach to, to doing things. I've talked to a number of people before about it. And they say, well, I need to do this, and my object model is really, you know, really complex, and, and I think a document database would work. What should I do? And I say, well, use a document mm-hmm. database, and if you need to report, figure out a way to get it into a relational database later mm-hmm. on. Well, and it's not even just, it's that the tooling works with SQL Server for reporting so much better. Right. You don't, you don't want to write all that code. So write the code once. Do them. What I really like here is, you know, every app has this ugliness, this mapping from the objects into the relational data store. The mm-hmm. only question is, do you know where yours is? Mm-hmm. So the idea that we take that ugliness out of the mainstream, out of the line of entry, and we put it in a background task, essentially, means our app runs faster, it's probably more reliable, and, you know, reporting tends not to be real-time. You generally only want to look at a report after the day's completed, so there's a window in there where you can run that right and not impact day-to-day operations doing it. Yep, and there's there's even some functionality, too, in in React. They have actually pre- and post-commit hooks, which are sort of like triggers, Um, if you want to bring nasty RDBMS terms into it, but... (laughs) <laughs> your your pre pre commit hook will obviously happen before the data is written, so you can massage the data in flight and even reject a read if you have to have business logic there. You can have that business logic there and say, okay, well, let's inspect this object before I save it. And then you can have your post commit that will you know take care of maybe it you know takes a look at the data you wrote and it writes it to some other either to some other places in the database or it might yeah like we talked about push it out to a relational database for reporting purposes. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Def- absolutely a chance to hook there. But, you know, it's interesting possibilities and just recognizing there's two different goals here and they don't have to be completely interlocked. You know, we were talking about load balancing before and is that something the developer has to do? You've actually got a round-robin uh, pooling kind of load balancer in uh, in your product, don't you? Yeah, we, we, we implemented a round-robin one. Uh, we had some comments from a, a number of people when we released the first version on Hacker News. And, um, you know, the traditional Hacker News way, it was a, it was a little harsh, but you got to have yeah. a thick skin when you put something out there for the world to see. And, it, and yeah, one yeah. of the things we came into is, you know, round-robin is a very, very primitive but easy-to-implement way to do load balancing. Sure. It's also remarkably effective. I, in the, the whole Pareto, as a guy who's done a bucket load of load balancing, let me tell you something. 80-20 rule applies. Round <laughs> robin works. Yeah. It really does. Especially when you're talking about this kind of querying, which is relatively small. Right. You know, each individual query is probably not that heavyweight. Yeah, you, you, you're okay. It'll be okay. Yeah. And our, our ultimate goal was to, you know, if, if people come, you know, talk about it enough and say, well, I really need something else. We were just going to flip it and say, well, here, you can just plug in, you know, some kind of algorithm <laughs> if you want, but we're going to use this round robin by default. And you, you yeah. can make it, mm. you can build your own Rube Goldberg machine. We'll just, we'll just let you do that. <laughs> well, and this is known science, right? Like you do not need to reinvent load balancing at the HTTP level. It's been done. Yes, exactly. And, you know, we figured too, if, if you really want a good load balancer, you should probably just use a load balancer. Right. Yeah. There are plenty of people who will sell you a fine piece of hardware that does that. Yeah. We talked about uh, where clauses and stuff like that. You, um, React has the ability to to look at the values based on a, a, a sort of a where syntax, equals or not equal to or contains or something like that. 
So there's there's the key value filtering, which is there's some you know pretty pretty decent support for Boolean logic and tearing apart strings and tokenizing them and, and doing some examination. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's on the key level. On the value level, you know, in your MapReduce, you actually just have to write something that can parse whatever data is in the database. So, and your, your options there for MapReduce are either to write JavaScript or to write Erlang. You know, the, the, the upside is you can use the power of JavaScript, and it, it is a pretty powerful language. Um, some people despise it. Or you can get crazy and write Erlang. Hmm. And Erlang is, an, is a functional language, if I remember correctly? Yes, it's, it's functional programming, and, and um, it's a very different way to write code. I'm not particularly yeah. good at it yet. Um, it's, it's sort of, hmm... You know, I, I can do SQL and I can write, you know, object-oriented code. Let's write something that I have to actually think about. Yeah, how you... It's surprising how much in your head now is the composition of code. Or I, I mean, a lot of ways, SQL is a functional language. So the composition of a query is the right kind of thinking. But when yes. you apply that to another language and a task other than data retrieval, it's hard. It's very hard. <laughs> I used to think I was smart. Then I tried to do functional programming. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's how I felt. I tried to, you know, I started working with React. I, I tried to learn Erlang mm. at a, at a, you know, I was like, well, I know .NET. And I picked .NET up pretty quickly because I knew some, some Perl and Java, and that was easy. And I can read C because it's sort of like everything else under the sun. And I learned JavaScript, and that was easy. So I bet I can learn Erlang really quickly. And I, I got one of the Erlang programming books. It's got these exercises in it. And the first one's like, you know, add two numbers. Okay, I can add two numbers. And you start working through and they get more and more complicated tasks. And uh, in the introduction, uh, you should finish all these before you go through it. <laughs> it took me three weeks to finish one of the examples in the third chapter. I was like, I'm not sure yeah. this is for me. Maybe I'm It's not- definitely a left brain thing. Like I'm, I'm too much of a, of, of a right brain person to, to grok that stuff. I got to admit. And you know what worries me in this area is, there was, uh, do you remember XSLT? Oh, God, how could I oh. forget? XML <laughs> transformations, because that was also functional. And it's one of the reasons I think it drove a lot of people away, was that after a while, you're like, apparently, I'm not smart enough to do this. <laughs> so um, maybe it's actually this language sucks. I'm going to do it <laughs> a different way now. <laughs> That's well, the- <laughs> you compare the XSLT experience to Link for XML. And you're like, yeah. apparently this doesn't have to suck. That's right. Oh, Link it's for so XML nice. is so nice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, um, that's, that's actually one of the tricky things. I know the guys at, at, at Basho, the company that produces Reactive, come into counter with is that that JavaScript to Erlang bridge is very tricky to maintain, but at the same time, there aren't a lot of people who know Erlang. Right. So they, they keep that in place. Um, OJ is actually, the other guy who works on corrugated iron with me, is actually in the very early stages of a project explaining functional programming for .NET developers. Mm. So he's, you know, he's trying to get that out there because there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with it. And there's some problems we actually solved in C Sharp where we sort of jokingly said, maybe we should have put some of this in F Sharp. No, then nobody could help us write this code anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> Basho is a uh, is an Indonesian company. Um, no, they're based in the states. It's um, it's yeah, you know, it's it's very interesting that it's it's all got these very you know foreign names, but it's a bunch of guys in in the states, um, hmm. in Boston and San Francisco. Well, I read the story on corrugated iron. That the, uh, React was originally called Ripple, and then they changed it to React because that's the Indonesian word for Ripple. Yeah, I th- I'm not entirely sure why it was changed to the Indonesian word for Ripple. Maybe it just sounded <laughs> cool. Well, I think you can trademark React, and you can't trademark Ripple. Probably, probably it. <laughs> or you can buy the domain name React, and you can't buy the domain name Ripple. <laughs> that could it's also funny how be our it. motivations work. Yeah, it's so- interesting. It's it's been really interesting working on this, um, especially because there's so much low level functionality to write. That's the things you take for granted when you're using something like Link or ADO.net. Even where you, well, how do I instantiate a connection? Oh, I have to open a socket. Hey, no problem for me. Yeah, but it's, it's building up this functionality and and slowly trying to 
the fun part for me is building this up and trying to build a a really useful .NET library for people to make it very easy to start interacting with this in a very idiomatic way for .NET programmers. And I got to think key to that ultimately will be Link, but I know that's a hard hurdle to jump. It it is in some ways, and it isn't. So there's there's a piece of React called a React Search, which is very much like Lucene Solar. And when you do indexing on with React Search, you can supply a schema. So you say, this is what my document looks like. This is how you will search it and find everything in there. And as long as somebody supplies that schema, it shouldn't be terribly, terribly painful to implement a link provider for that at least limited use case. Hmm. Things get tricky when all of a sudden you're like, well, I want a link provider that writes ad hoc JavaScript for me in multiple map reduce phases. Hmm. Oh, that could that wouldn't be hard. No, yeah. not at all. Oh, <laughs> uh, as soon as you yeah, as soon as you're writing a language to write other languages, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what we wanted to avoid. Yeah. Well, Jeremiah, uh, thanks for sharing this with us. And uh, the website is corrugatediron.org. Uh, it looks like great stuff. React looks great, and your tool, I guess, is being uh, widely downloaded. Fantastic. It's been a pleasure. Thank you guys so much. And we'll see you next time on Dot Rocks. Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.